0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is so true that we we wrestle with this thing called faith. As Tim said, there's probably no more common word in the Christian vocabulary, and yet Very often, there's very little definition, and too often, our definition is that of the natural man, the natural mind. It is wishful thinking, it is hopefulness concerning a personal agenda, personal desires, hopes, and dreams. And Father, I pray that even in our consideration this morning, that you would help us to sharpen that understanding, that you would inform and you would nourish and transform our minds. That we would grow in what it really is to be a faithful people. A people whose faith is directed towards the faithfulness of our God. A people who live steadfast lives. And so lift our eyes to you, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us do as the writer of Hebrews said concerning faith. Let us be able by your spirit to bring into the present that which does not presently exist and to perceive and to own that which does not meet our sight. Help us, minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you that are as old as I am or maybe a little bit younger can remember a tennis player named Andre Agassi, uh, probably back in the 80s I would imagine, I don't know for sure, but um, among his other endorsements, I think he was a Canon endorser and he he did a commercial that the, the slogan was, uh, image is everything. And I thought about that even not only in my study this week, but even in the service this morning in terms of a little shift on that, which is that perspective is everything. And it's not enough to simply use words or terms. It's not enough to even be people that read the Bible or do whatever, live this thing called the Christian life. Perspective is everything. And this is why the work of the Spirit is not reforming our religion, not reforming our behavior, Uh, not even teaching us more information, but renewing our minds. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is the work of the spirit, but it means that we have to bring a proper perspective, a proper set of lenses to bear as we interact with the scripture. And, you know, one of the, the strings on my banjo forever has been this need to read the scriptures in the light of their own telling of their story. Too often we've been taught in our culture, uh, certainly in the Christian culture that I grew up in, we view the scriptures as a collection of theological and doctrinal propositions, as it were, kind of religious self-help information. We can catalog verses to support this doctrine and catalog verses to support that doctrine. And we don't really interact with the scriptures as they really are God's revealing of himself to the world through this instrumentality that is Israel. The calling of Israel, his revealing of himself, his purposes, even giving us the language of theology, the language of worship, the language of relationship through his interactions with Israel, which were very difficult relationships. I didn't know that Tim was going to read Deuteronomy 32, but very apt to what we're going to consider today. It was a song that Moses was told to compose and teach the sons of Israel that they would be ever mindful of two things, their own unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness towards them. And so the song rehearses Israel's history with God. His goodness, his provision, his never-ending faithfulness, and in the context of all of that, their never-ending unfaithfulness. As God put it through his prophet Jeremiah, this work that I will do when I renew the covenant will not be like the former covenant relationship. I was a husband to them, but they were unfaithful to me. And so the song of Moses, it shows God's faithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness, and yet it ends on that high point of God's reminder that this won't be the last word. Your unfaithfulness, your rebellion that will even bring about my hand of chastening, in exile, in desolation. That won't be the last word. I will arise. I will restore. I will vindicate my purposes with this covenant people because their good outcome is absolutely fundamental to my purpose, not just for the human world, but for the whole creation. Israel must triumph For the sake of my purposes for the creation that I love and the destiny that I've ordained for it. Israel will become Israel. And we know how that ultimately came about in the incarnation of Jesus himself. The one in whom Israel became Israel, the one in whom all of God's purposes for the world are realized. And as we continue with the Psalms this morning, I want us to have that sense again. The Psalms, like so much of the scripture, uh, it's very easy for us to look at them through the lens of our own time, our own issues, our own need, our own desire. And claim the promises of God in some sort of self- serving way as we pull up a particular passage or a particular verse for the day, a particular reading, as it happens to be, but as i 've said from the outset, the psalms are the songs of israel 's sonship. they were at the very heart of israel 's worship, they celebrated, they commemorated they even agonized over Israel's relationship of sonship with God and as songs of sonship they deal with all of the aspects of sonship we started with this first section of Psalms that we looked at that that lay out a celebration of sonship what really is Israel's sonship how it evoked their praise their thanksgiving their joy their hope but there's also another aspect of Israel's sonship that the Psalms very much deal with which is this matter of challenges in sonship Israel's sonship had an obligation that it imposed on them just as it imposed an obligation on God Israel was to be faithful as son of God, just as God would be faithful as Israel's covenant God and father. Again, as Jeremiah says, I've been a husband to them. They were unfaithful to me. I have kept covenant. I have been faithful. They have not. And all through that relationship, there were issues that were challenges to Israel's faithfulness to Israel's sonship, to its sense of its relationship with God. And that becomes the second section then that I want to start to unfold, the challenges in Israel's sonship. And I want to begin with this idea or this topic of lament. I think all of us who've been Christians for any length of time understand that there are these psalms of lament. There are certain psalms that we call psalms of lament, and I start with lament or lamentation because, again, it's a fundamental issue that expresses Israel's sonship and, particularly, the challenges and the struggles that Israel had in fulfilling that responsibility, that calling. It's a predominant theme throughout the Psalter. Dozens of the Psalms have their fundamental theme in this issue of lament or lamentation. And even where that's not the primary emphasis, I would argue that if you read the Psalms carefully, again in their historical Israelite context, you see that lament is thematic in virtually all of the Psalms at some level in some degree. It can reflect, and often this is the way we think of it, it can reflect the heartbreak, the pain, the agony of personal failure. Lament can also reflect the grief, the anxiousness, the pain of unjust suffering, injustice. You also see in the Psalms that it can reflect the sort of fear, the, the, the anxiousness, the trepidation of the sense of God's departure, that God has abandoned the psalmist, that God has forsaken his people, either individually or corporately. And we see among the Psalms of Lament that some of them are very personal, some of them are communal And again, you would expect that because the the Psalms of Lament deal with Israel's sonship. And we're going to look at both, not today. Today I want to start with the personal lament idea, but then we'll look the next time at the communal dimension of lament. What I want to to set in front of you as two fundamental issues of perspective, as I said, perspective is everything. Two fundamental things that have to be the lens through which we understand this thing of lament and how do we even approach psalms of lament or lament as a dynamic in the scriptures and even in our lives that we live with God. We tend to think of lament as sadness, sorrow, anxiousness, concerning circumstances in our life. We're lamenting something, something that is the way it shouldn't be, either because of our failures, somebody else's failures, God's apparent failure. We're lamenting something that to us appears to be not the way that it ought to be. But in the biblical sense of it, as it pertains to Israel's life with God in the scriptures, lament is not just feeling sad, not just feeling anxious about circumstances. It is a mindful, directed, intentional directing of oneself to God in those circumstances, Lament is a Godward thing, but in a specific sense. It begins with an honest, a sincere, a humble acknowledgement of our plight and our helplessness. Okay, that far I think all of us could agree. It begins with a very honest, very sincere, and open, a transparent, humble acknowledgement of our helplessness. And our desperate need of God's intervention. It's a crying out to God. And in the Psalms and in, in this idea of lament in the scriptures, whether in the prayers of, of the prophets or the prayers of people like uh, Nehemiah or Daniel or Jacob or whatever, it may involve, lament may involve pleas for deliverance. But it has a different perspective and vision, a different sight, if you will, a different perspective and vision and goal than simply self-concern and a desire to be delivered from difficulty. In other words, it may cry out to God for deliverance, but not simply, God, this hurts, make it not hurt. God, this isn't good, take it away. God, I don't like this, deal with this. It has a certain perspective in crying out to God and even in seeking this idea of deliverance. In Israel's scripture, lament is situated within a covenant. Reality, a covenant orientation and, and, and reality, and therefore it has a covenantal and a relational dynamic. Psalms of lament are a, a subset of Israel's songs of sonship. And my point is that lament is situated within the reality of sonship. It's the way, it's one way in which the children relate to the father. So it's grounded in the fact of covenant relationship, and therefore it's relational in its orientation. Israel's laments, whether individual or communal, corporate, reflected their covenant sonship. And what that really required of them, what that implied, what it entailed, what it required of them. And what it also implied and entailed and required of their covenant father. So Israel's scriptural lamentations aren't just about finding oneself in a trying circumstance and calling upon God to make this right, calling upon God to remedy my difficult circumstance. It has a totally different sense and orientation. So that's the first piece of the lens that I want us to look through. And hopefully as we start to consider these psalms that will become more obvious. The second piece of this is that because lament or lamentation is grounded in covenant relationship and because it also holds to it's based in and it and it expresses and 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 even draws upon the truths of that covenant relationship lament gives voice to faith and hope because lament or lamentation is grounded in covenant relationship. God as father, people as his children. This lament gives voice to it, it's grounded in it and it expresses faith and hope, but again in the scriptural sense. And so, what that then implies this is the second piece of the lens is that lament is a crucial aspect of worship. If the Psalms are central to Israel's worship, and lament is the primary theme, I would argue, throughout the Psalms, then then lament must be a key aspect of authentic worship. Now that may not seem intuitively obvious to us, especially if we think of lament in terms of complaining and grumbling and I'm unhappy and why is my life this way? That seems like the antithesis of worship. We have to set aside our grumbling and start thinking about God instead of our problems. But when we understand lament rightly, we see that it's at the core, it's at the very heart of what it is to be worshipers. Its central place in the Psalter tells us that, even if we don't understand how that's the case. Lament is essential to our worship, but only as it's rightly understood and only as it's rightly employed. So this morning, I'd like us to consider the 13th Psalm. As I said, there are dozens of lament Psalms, and The theme of lament is woven into virtually every Psalm, whether in a personal sense or in a communal sense, again, because of the nature of Israel's relationship with God. But I've picked Psalm 13, number one, because it's very concise. And yet while being very concise, it draws in the essential elements of lament in the scriptural sense. Things like sorrow, complaint in the biblical sense, supplication, faith, hope, patience. Psalm 13 is ascribed to David. It's one of his many Psalms of lament. But let's go ahead and read this. The ascription is for the choir director. This really means the overseer. But it's an ascription that is used throughout the Psalms. And only one other place at the end of Habakkuk, where at the end of Habakkuk, it is, again, what he says and prays is held up uh, for the worshiping of God along with stringed instruments. So it's an ascription that refers to one who either is the chief musician or leads the choir, leads the singing in Israel's worship. The NAS, again, says for the choir director. But my point in mentioning that is that this psalm of lament was supposed to be a part of Israel's corporate worship. It's not just David's personal thing between him and God. This was to be, he gave this to Israel for its worship. This is for the choir director, for the chief musician. This is for Israel's corporate worship. A psalm of David. How long, O Yahweh? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I be forced to take counsel in my own being? With sorrow in my heart all the day. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Give thought. Take note, give heed, answer me, O Yahweh, who is my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, very brief, very concise, but it really pulls together these components of lament in the scriptural sense. The occasion of this is uncertain. Obviously, different scholars have different ideas about what provoked David to pen this. But the fact that he... He, he writes this and gives this to the choir director or the leader of worship in Israel would suggest that he penned it while he was king. Because it, remember, it was after David became king that he appointed the singers and the musicians who would lead God's worship after he established Yahweh's presence in Jerusalem in particular. So we don't know exactly what's being gotten at, but this would be in the context of David's kingship. David, as God's chosen man, the man after God's own heart, anointed, chosen, given the throne of Israel to administer God's reign over his covenant people. This is not one of the songs of ascent, as we considered the last time, that that group of psalms, the 15 psalms that are the psalms of ascent, but it does have an ascending quality to the flow of the psalm itself. It starts at a low point and it ends on a climactic high point. And this is very much characteristic of the psalms of lament. Why? Why? because the Psalms of Lament are Israelite Psalms that are grounded in the fact that the the Lamenter, whether the nation or an individual, that person or the people of Israel are the covenant people of the God who is faithful. So in their struggle, in their agony, in their suffering, which they are holding up to God, it always takes them back to the fact that this is our God who is faithful. And so lament has a rising quality to it. And you see that here very much. There's three main sections to this psalm. Just coincidentally broken down into two verses, two verses, two verses. Now the verses are not original of the song, right? But nonetheless, in our Bibles, it's broken down as verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and then 5 and 6. The first is David's complaint, his putting of his burden before the Lord. The second section then is his plea to the Lord in view of his burden, in view of his suffering, in view of that which he is struggling with. He offers it up and then he gives his plea to the Lord. And then, thirdly, his expression of faith concerning God's faithfulness to meet him in his need. And once again, David's personal lament here, we don't know what it is. And God wasn't pleased to let us know what exactly David was dealing with. Who is this enemy? What is this that's going on? Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that David, as representative of the people, if Israel was son of God, David was preeminently son of God. The regal son of, who ruled over God's kingdom in his name and power. And David's personal lament, David's personal uh, uh, struggle and, and holding this up to God was to, in a sense, be given over to Israel as their hope, as their struggle, as their own worship. For the choir director, for the sons of Israel, his lament was for Israel's worship and joy. Well, again, as I said, it opens with David's complaint, which takes the form of a fourfold question. Now, complaint, it, I don't mean in the way that we use it, grumbling and complaining and murmuring. You know, we, we give our, we chide and discipline our kids for complaining this isn't complaint in that sense it's complaint in the sense of raising something of concern putting bringing a concern to god and it takes a fourfold form of this idea of how long in hebrew it would be until when until what point until what point how long Four times. How long? How long? How long? And even broken into at the very outset, but overshadowing all of that, is the question Forever? How long? Forever? How long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel within myself? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Whatever it was that David was facing, it had a length, it had a duration, and it had an intensity that made him ask these questions. This wasn't a momentary thing. In the face of what he was, this opposition, this this thing that was pressing him so hard, David felt that the Lord had actually abandoned him. And again, it takes the context of David was the anointed king. David was the man after God's own heart. God had chosen him. God had put him on the throne of Israel. And now he's suffering at the hands of adversity, adversaries of some sort that made him wonder whether the Lord had abandoned him. Maybe the Lord had changed his intent for him. Maybe the Lord was no longer faithful to his purposes as they pertained to David. And worse than simply feeling like the Lord had walked away, David was tormented by the thought that perhaps Yahweh had willfully turned away from him. It wasn't just like God had lost sight of him, but God had intentionally, willfully hidden his face from him. This isn't just God being distracted with other things and forgetting about David and missing his his suffering, missing his adversity. But God actually willfully turning away from him. It seemed to him in the moment that God had left him to his enemy's devices and was taking no notice of the way this enemy was exalting himself over him. In other words, boasting of his triumph, mocking David's suffering, mocking his humiliation. And most likely in the context of you are God's king. You are the one that God has put on the throne. You're saying God is for you. Where is your God? It has echoes of even what we will see in the son of David, right? As he's going to the cross. Where is your God? If you are the son of God. Come down off that cross. Where is your God? Where is he? Where is his favor towards you? David felt utterly alone. Left to bear the burden. And the anxious thoughts of his pain. And the sorrow. The anxiety that filled his weary vexed heart. That's the idea of him saying, how long shall I take counsel in my own soul? David felt like he was left to himself. He had to try to find solace, comfort, answers, remedy from within himself. God had hidden his face from him. David was on his own. And in that torment, David was unsure when or even if the Lord would return to him. How long? Forever? How long? Forever? That's David's complaint to God, crying out to him. It seemed to him that the Lord had willfully abandoned him. And yet, And yet, in his heart of hearts, however it seemed, however it felt, however it appeared to him in his agony, in his humiliation, in his heart of hearts, David knew that even if God had turned away from him, that would not be the last word. That would not be the last word. David understood. He knew that he was bound to his God as a son to a father. Yahweh had chosen him. Yahweh had anointed him. Yahweh had put him on the throne. Yahweh had covenanted with him for his house, his throne, and his kingdom. And even though they were going to go away, yet God said, one day I will restore your fallen tabernacle in a son to come from you. My covenant with you will stand. My faithful mercies will stand. In his heart of hearts, David knew. He knew that even if God had turned away from him, it wouldn't be the last word. He felt in his spirit, in his heart, in his emotions that the Lord had abandoned and forgotten him. But he knew in his mind, in his conviction, his God and his relationship with him. And so he remained confident that Yahweh would hear his pleas and come to his aid. His enemies had beaten him down and they were celebrating their apparent triumph. The triumph was really not in the physical affliction that they had imposed on him or even the emotional affliction. Uh, humiliation or whatever. Ultimately, their triumph was their victory over his mind. It wasn't what they were doing to him. It was the way that they were, in a sense, bringing calamity to his faith and and dissolving his confidence in his God. That was the way in which they were achieving triumph. Triumph. They were exalting over him in the sense that they could see that David's faith was being rocked. They believed that they were able to crush his faith and dissolve his confidence. That God would indeed be faithful. So you see the beginning of David's triumph, his deliverance, in the fact that he's recovering himself from how he feels how it seems to him and pulling his mind back to the truth of who he is and who his God is and that he is yet faithful. He pleads with God as my God. Again, take note of me. He said, it seems you've hidden your face. You've turned away from me. Turn back to me, consider me, answer me, Yahweh, who is my God. Not a deity out in space, not some arbitrary sense of some powerful being out there, but my God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is my God who has made me king, who has put me on the throne, the God I know in this way, the God I know in truth. Turn to me, turn to me, answer me, Yahweh, my God. And he doesn't ask him, note this, he doesn't ask him, remove all these things that are vexing me. Kill my enemies. Have a move to another city. Have him find a different job. What does he ask? What is the, the heart of his petition? Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And there are two ways this can be understood, and I think both are valid. The second is more encompassing and more significant it can carry the idea, the the Hebraism of brighten my eyes. You know, the, the, the Hebrew scripture used the idea of he took some nourishment and his eyes were brightened. It's the idea of kind of a physical reinvigoration. And that's in some sense suggested by his lest in verse three, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This has pressed me to the point of death. So enlighten my eyes in the sense of give me renewed vigor. Restore my strength. But the second idea is illumine my eyes in the sense of enable me to again bind my mind to the truth. Bind my mind to the truth. And in that way, then, you will strip my enemies of their victory. Do you see that? That's important. David, his, his enemy, whatever this was, his adversaries were prevailing over him. And the way for him to take that back was to have his sight his understanding, his mind back on the truth. It wasn't kill these people, get them out of my life, make my life easy again. It's helped me to see what is true. Then I will have the victory over those who assault me and say, Where is your God? Where is he? He doesn't care. What's he doing? He's abandoned you, he's forsaken you. That would strip his enemies of their apparent triumph and their boasting. And you see this then in his exultant expression of confidence in verses 5 and 6. But I, this is emphatic in Hebrew. This is the idea of, as for me, I have trusted in your loving kindness. Enlighten my eyes. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's the cause my heart to rejoice In the deliverance that you have given me. Not just that you're going to deliver me in some physical, tangible way in the future, but you have delivered me already by virtue of my relationship with you. I have trusted in your loving kindness. I have trusted in your loving kindness. And loving kindness, as I've said before, is not simply, God, I know you're good, God, I know you're merciful. God, I know you'll help me because that's the kind of God you are. You'll come and you'll rescue me. You'll solve my problems. This is a covenantal idea. This is a covenant term. Loving kindness has said God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his relationships. He will be a father to his people. And so, yes, there, it carries the idea of kindness. It carries the idea of loving favor. But set within the fact that God is committed, he is faithful to his covenant commitments. So by asserting and declaring his trust in the Lord's loving kindness, I, I have trusted in that. David is affirming his confidence that God remains faithfully devoted to his covenant and its goals that have David at the center of them. David is viewing, this confidence he has in God is the confidence in the God who has purposed and revealed and declared and covenanted and he will be faithful to that. And David had a role in that. David had a place in that. God would uphold that. His assurance was grounded in God's integrity and faithfulness, if you will, God's righteousness, not some whimsical sense that God is kind and merciful and He'll come and rescue me. That's not what loving kindness is about. It's a covenant term, it speaks of truth, it speaks of faithfulness to intention, to purpose. To accomplishment it was that steadfast commitment to God's purposes in and through Israel that have David at the center and the fact that God would accomplish that that's what lifted David's heart from the dust that's what reinvigorated him with sure hope that Yahweh would again turn his favor back to him just as he had done so many times so he begins on this low point of how long, how long, how long. And he ends on the triumphal affirmation of his confidence in his faithful God. Whatever the circumstances might seem to suggest to his feelings. The pressure, the agony of his affliction had made it appear to David in the moment that God had abandoned him. And all he needed to do was to set his mind again on the truth to be delivered from that deception and despair. That's a very important point. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Psalms of Lament just as the song of Moses by which the sons of Israel were to remember who their God was, what he had covenanted, what he had done. They would remember, and even as they showed themselves unfaithful throughout their generations, they would remember God had said, it's going to be this way, but I will remain faithful. I will arise. I will set all things right. I will make you be my people in truth. I will make Israel be Israel. And that song, and I've said it before, we teach little kids to learn things through song. I remember learning the Bible books in a song, you know, when I was a little kid. But whether it's the alphabet or whatever, we put things to song because it makes it more memorable. And God had Israel learn songs That would be things that they needed to remember generation after generation after generation. And that same dynamic of needing to govern their minds and their hearts by the truth of their God who is faithful, not by their circumstances, not by how it feels, not by what's happening in the moment, not by what I want to happen. But confidence in the God who will be faithful. And that as I fit into that, as David fit into those purposes, Yahweh would be true. And wherever this fell in David's life, it wasn't the end of his difficulty, right? When he said, he has dealt bountifully with me, I will sing to the Lord. I will make myself sing praises to God. I will will evoke that out of my heart. He has dealt bountifully with me. And David's life from the time of his anointing was not an easy life. It was a very difficult life throughout. And it ended on a very bad note. It began with Saul opposing him unjustly. It, be- it followed through with all the problems of kingship and conquest, even in his own household, with the enmity and the strife and the division amongst his children. And Absalom seeking to take the kingdom from him. And his own unfaithfulness before God and the burden of that. And it ended on the very low note that the kingdom was going to go away. God was going to divide it. But he would prove faithful. So David's joy in singing deliverance that God will deliver him is not, it's going to be better tomorrow. It's tough today, but tomorrow's a new day and your miracle's just around the corner. That wasn't how David was thinking about this. So in concluding then, if we're going to deal with this idea of lament, if we're going to own the psalms properly, if they're going to come songs of our sonship and and, and instruments of our worship, then we need to understand them rightly. We need to use them and, and relate to them in a right sort of way. And yes, lament can and does arise from personal struggles. And yes, lament can and does seek the Lord's favor in personal struggles. It was that way with David. I want to start with a personal lament because this is David's struggle. But he saw it as for the whole nation too. Not just his own difficulties. But again, the focus of scriptural lament is our desire to perceive circumstances the way God does to perceive our circumstances that uh, that uh, provoke our lament the way God does and desire to see him realize his purposes that he has established in his son paul says in ephesians 1 this god who is sovereign who works all things after the counsel of his will what is that He is working towards, now in administering the fullness of the times, he's working towards summing up everything in the heavens and the earth in the Messiah. We want to see our circumstances the way God sees them. That means a larger vision, a larger perspective. And we need to recognize this God who is working towards the accomplishing in full of his design to renew and sum up everything in his son. And so we desire then in our circumstances to fulfill our place and our role. And we don't have to know specifically what that is, but all of this, this is what Paul means when he says all things work together for good to God, to the the one who loves God. He's not saying just love God and everything will go the way you want it to be. He's saying even in the things that are not the way they ought to be fitted into God's purposes, they will work for good. They will work for good. So my point is this, when we think of lament, when we cry out to God, most often our sorrow, our anxiousness, our fear, our having our heart in the dust regarding our difficulties is our concern that God would remove them. That God will fix the things that we think are not the way they ought to be. And in some instances, they're not the way they ought to be. But we cry out to God to fix the thing that hurts. You know, the guy goes to the doctor and he says, Doc, my arm hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, don't do that. Right. But we want, give me a pill. Give me this. Fix this. Fix that. Take away this. This hurts. I don't like this. Take this. Fix this. That is not scriptural lament. That is just the natural self-concern that people have. That's not lament that is worship. That's self-concern. So how do we distinguish then? With this I'm done. How do we distinguish between lament biblically that is worship and that honors God and that he desires and he delights in and selfish concern? How do we distinguish between them? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to consciously and constantly purpose ourselves to have our minds set on God's larger purposes, not our circumstances as such. And that's a discipline of the mind. This is where the battle's fought. The battle is up here. Paul says we tear down strongholds of the mind. That's where the battle is fought. Even lofty thoughts, supposedly lofty thoughts that are actually raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the truth of the Messiah himself. If we're going to be lamenting people, look at, look at how David, he cries out to God and he says, I have trusted you. Here's what I know. Here's what's true. His victory over his adversaries came when he got his mind back in the right place. It wasn't about whether his circumstances changed. It was how he thought. We have to consciously, constantly purpose ourselves to have our minds set on God's larger purpose we have to bind our minds and hearts to the truth that we are scripted into God's story he's not scripted into ours we're scripted into his story well that obviously implies that we've got to know what is his story See, David, he he again pulled himself back to the fact that he was scripted into God's story. And that was a covenant thing. That was an Israelite thing. That was a kingship thing. We have to know God's story. What is this all about? If we're going to then say, okay, I'm written into that. God isn't written into my story. In other words, we have to guard against this thing of religion. Religion is where people think about and reach out to powers out there who can come to my rescue when I need them. If I offer the right sacrifice, if I pray the right prayer, if I do the right thing, if I get my behavior in order, if I throw the virgin in the volcano, if I offer the sacrifice, if I burn my child in the fire, whatever, then the deity will come to my rescue and my crops will come in and my, the wombs will be fertile and will be healthy and it'll be great, right? Right? That's what religion has always been about. It's human beings grafting spiritual forces into their agenda. And that's the way we do this thing called Christianity so often. You see it in a million different ways. I don't need to belabor it. We have to discipline ourselves then to regard our lives First, we have to deal with our minds up here and realize, again, that we see and understand God's larger story and that we're written into that. Then we have to regard our lives as serving his purposes in the world, not our personal agendas. Our lives serve God's purposes in the world, not our personal agendas. God, give me the wife that I want. Give me the job that I want. Fix this, fix that, fix the other thing. Let me walk through life on a silk pillow because you love me. Put everything in place. All the little touchstones that I can walk along. We're... Written into God's story, our lives serve his purposes in the world. And it's really in that way that our lives take on the significance that he intends. So that we strive to be in God's will, which means that we strive to perceive and utilize the moments and the circumstances of our lives in the cause of God's kingdom and its declaration in word and deed. We are children of the kingdom whose lives, whether we eat or we drink or we cook or we clean the toilet or whatever we do. Paul says, in all things, you are children of the kingdom. Let your lives testify to that. We're wanting God to fix our lives. He's saying all of your life is to be an act of worship in that way. And then thirdly, we trust God will remain faithful to his purposes and work, which we are written into. We don't often know how, we don't know how this fits into our place, but we're like a piece in the jigsaw puzzle. We are critical to it. We are critical to it. And we have to trust that God remains faithful to all that he has purposed and made yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. That's the sense in which, like David, we can be confident that God will arise on our behalf and minister to our need. It's not that he's going to come and do what we want him to do. But he will arise. He will minister to our need. Because like that piece in the puzzle, it's crucial to the whole big picture. And God will accomplish Summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth and the Messiah, which, if we are Christians, we play a critical role in. And that should be enough for us. But I hope you can see that this is an issue of the mind. This is what it means to know the scriptures, this is what it means to know how God has revealed Himself. And that's why I started, as I did, by saying this is not a book of theological and doctrinal propositions. It is the story of the God who is and how he has revealed himself through his purposes carried out on the stage of world history, focused on a people, Israel, that ultimately has its focal point in the Messiah himself. If we're going to grow in the scriptures, if we're going to grow in the knowledge of God, that's how we grow. And then we have to discipline our minds to live in that space. It's very easy to not live in that space. God, where are you? Where did you go? Why is it this way? Why fix this? Help me, help me, help me, help me. Right? This is an encouraging message, I hope, and it certainly helps us to see how God wants us to put it all out there to him, but to trust him. He doesn't say suck it up and get on with the program. As I said, this starts with honest, transparent, humble, dependent, crying out to God. Get my heart and my mind back where they need to be. Help me. That I would prove faithful and that in my life of faithfulness, I would testify to the God who is faithful, whatever may come. I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him against that day. Father, help us in these things. It really is just nothing more than a matter of perspective. And there is a natural way that we think about lament. There is a natural way that we think about petition and supplication and and coming to our God in need. But there is another way the truly human way, the way of worship, the way of truth, the way that was revealed to us and given substance in the world in the man Christ Jesus. And if we are sharers in him, then we need to be worshipers as he was. We need to be people who think and who relate to you. And who interact with you and who plead and who complain and who supplicate in the way that the Lord Jesus did. Father, this is the way of freedom. This is the way of liberation. This is what gives us deliverance and triumph over our adversaries. Whether they are tangible adversaries outside of us or whether they are the adversaries that work in our minds and our hearts the victory is in a renewed mind a disciplined mind help us in these things that we would be a lamenting people in truth that our lament would be worship and that you would be pleased and honored because our lament accords with the truth We ask these things in the name of the one who is the truth and in whom we become true ones. Amen.